Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting. In our last episode, we began our look at the instructions offered to the Barrisone trial jury by Judge Stephen Taylor before sending them off to deliberate. On today's installment, we continue that examination beginning with Judge Taylor's instructions regarding the evidence that the jury may consider in judging the facts of the case. That's all coming up right after the break. 
I gave a limiting instruction as to how to use certain evidence. That evidence must be considered by you for that purpose only. You cannot use it for any other purpose. As jurors, it is your duty to weigh the evidence calmly and without passion, prejudice, or sympathy. Any influence caused by these emotions has the potential to deprive both the state and the defendant of what you promised them, a fair and impartial trial by fair and impartial jurors. Also, speculation, conjecture, and other forms of guessing play no role in the performance of your duty. As I instructed you at the beginning of the case, evidence may be either direct or circumstantial. Excuse me. Direct evidence means evidence that directly proves a fact without an inference, and which in itself, if true, conclusively establishes that fact. On the other hand, circumstantial evidence means evidence that proves a fact from which an inference of the existence of another fact may be drawn. An inference is a deduction of fact that may logically and reasonably be drawn from another fact or group of facts established by the evidence. Whether or not inferences should be drawn is for you to decide using your own common sense knowledge, and everyday experience. Ask yourselves, is it probable, logical, and reasonable? It is not necessary that all facts be proven by direct evidence. They may be proven by direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, or a combination of direct and circumstantial evidence. All are acceptable means of proof. In many cases, circumstantial evidence may be more certain, satisfying, and persuasive than direct evidence. However, direct and circumstantial evidence should be scrutinized and evaluated carefully. A verdict of guilty may be based on direct evidence alone, circumstantial evidence alone, or a combination of direct and circumstantial evidence, provided, of course, that it convinces you of a defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The reverse is also true. A defendant may be found not guilty by reason of direct evidence, circumstantial evidence, or a combination of the two, or a lack of evidence if it raises in your mind a reasonable doubt as to the defendant's guilt. And recall at the beginning of the case, I gave an example. I'm not going to repeat it in full here. I'm sure you remember it of my children going to sleep at night and looking out the window to see if it was snowing before school. They testified they saw snow falling before they went to bed. That's direct evidence. If they didn't see snow on the ground, they didn't see snow falling when they went to bed, but they woke up in the morning, they saw snow covered on the ground, the snow on the ground is a fact established from which they could draw a reasonable, logical inference that it had snowed during the night when they slept. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Judge Taylor continues his instructions to the jury regarding how they should regard evidence in the Barrisone trial by guiding them in their assessment of the reliability and credibility of witness testimony. Moving on to the credibility of witnesses. 
as the judges of the facts, you are to determine the credibility of the witnesses, and in determining whether a witness is worthy of belief and therefore credible, you may take into consideration the following. The appearance and demeanor of the witness, the manner in which he or she may have testified, the witness's interest in the outcome of the trial, if any, his or her means of obtaining knowledge of the facts, the witness's power of discernment, meaning his or her judgment, their understanding, his or her ability to reason, observe, recollect, and relate, the possible bias, if any, in favor of the side for whom the witness testified, the extent to which, if at all, each witness is either corroborated or contradicted, supported or discredited by other evidence, whether the witness testified with an intent to deceive you, the reasonableness or unreasonableness of the testimony the witness has given, whether the witness made any inconsistent or contradictory statement, and any and all other matters and evidence would serve to support or discredit his or her testimony. Through this analysis, as the judges of the facts, you weigh the testimony of each witness and then determine the weight to give it. Through that process, you may accept all of it, a portion of it, or none of it. If you believe that any witness willfully and knowingly testified falsely to any material facts in this case, with intent to deceive you, you may give such weight to his or her testimony as you deem it is entitled. You may believe some of it, or you may, in your discretion, disregard all of it. There is for your consideration in this case oral statements allegedly made by the defendant. It is your function to determine whether or not the statements were actually made by the defendant, and if made, whether the statements or any portion of them are credible. In considering whether or not an oral statement was actually made by the defendant, and if made, whether it is credible, you should receive, weigh, and consider this evidence with caution based on the generally recognized risk of misunderstanding by the hearer or the ability of the hearer to recall accurately the words used by the defendant. The specific words used and the ability to remember them are important to the correct understanding of any oral communications because the presence or absence or change of a single word may substantially change the true meaning of even the shortest sentence. You should therefore receive, weigh, and consider such evidence with caution. In addressing now the specific statements at issue, recall from the testimony Corporal Derek Heimer testified that at the scene of the shooting, defendant allegedly repeatedly stated, I had a good life. Police officer Jason Hensley testified that while defendant was in an ambulance being transported from the scene, he allegedly repeatedly stated, is this real? I need to wake up. Also, Detective Jason Gould testified he heard defendant make statements while in the ICU unit at the hospital. Detective Gould testified the defendant allegedly stated in sum and substance, they destroyed my life over the past six months. I had a good life. They took it all away and that he was sorry. In considering whether or not these statements are credible, you should take into consideration the circumstances and facts as to how the statements were made as well as all other evidence in this case relating to this issue. Among those circumstances, police officer Hensley testified that after taking 
custody of the defendant at the scene. He advised the defendant of his Miranda rights from a card he carried. Officer Hensley testified the defendant verbally acknowledged his Miranda rights but did not recall whether the defendant indicated he wished, he wished to speak to the officer. There was also testimony induced from various witnesses regarding the defendant's physical injuries and mental status at the time the statements were purportedly made. Those witnesses include Corporal Heimer, Officer John Wurtenberg, Detective Jason Gould, Police Officer Jason Hensley, Mobile Intensive Care Paramedic Dan Vitale, EMT worker Kimberly Held, and the top, uh, Dr. Haney from the hospital. And those are only my recollection, your recollection controls if there are other witnesses that address the defendant's state of mind, physical condition that may bear upon the statements he made and the credibility, you certainly consider those. You are not limited by that list of witnesses that I just read to you. If after consideration of all these factors you determine that the statements were not actually made or that the statements are not credible, then you must disregard the statements completely. If you find that the statements were made and that part or all of the statements are credible, you may give what weight you think appropriate to the portion of the statement you find to be truthful and credible. As you know, the defendant, Michael Barrison, elected not to testify at trial. It is his constitutional right to remain silent. You must not consider for any purpose or in any manner in arriving at your verdict the fact that Michael Barrison did not testify. That fact should not enter your deliberations or discussions in any manner or at any time. Michael Barrison is entitled to have the jury consider all the evidence presented at trial. He is presumed innocent whether or not he chooses to testify. In the next section, I'm going to address some limiting instructions. During the testimony of certain witnesses, they may have made reference to the fact that information was obtained from the defendant while he was in custody at the Morris County Jail. The fact that the defendant was detained in this facility at some point is irrelevant and should play no part in your consideration of this case. You may not use this evidence in any way to infer the defendant is guilty of the charges simply because he was in custody. You have also heard references to Lauren Canarak and Robert Goodwin having used drugs in the past. This testimony was admitted by the court for a limited purpose. Testimony may only be considered for the limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simmering and Dr. Hassan, or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on this information. You may not consider this testimony for any other purpose. You should not consider the testimony as substantive evidence relating to the guilt or innocence of the defendant, or consider it as reflecting the bad character of Lauren Canarak or Robert Goodwin. You also heard testimony regarding the purported and unverified prior criminal history of Robert Goodwin and Lauren Canarak, the defendant received from a private investigator, Joseph Blackler. The defense alleges this information affected the defendant's state of mind. I instruct you that this testimony may only be considered for the limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simmering and Dr. Hassan regarding the defendant's state of mind, or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on this information. Under our rules of evidence, a jury may consider a witness's criminal conviction in determining the credibility or believability of that witness. However, 
there is no evidence that Lauren Canarac or Robert Goodwin has a criminal conviction. You must not consider the testimony related to the alleged prior criminal history as affecting the credibility of Lauren Canarac or Robert Goodwin, nor may you consider it as substantive evidence related to the guilt or innocence of the defendant. The only relevance of the evidence is the extent to which you find it may have affected the defendant's state of mind. Similarly, you have heard reference in testimony to Lauren Canarac owning or possessing a firearm. Again, this testimony was admitted by the court for a limited purpose. Testimony may only be considered for the limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simring, Dr. Hassan, and Dr. Schlesinger regarding the defendant's state of mind or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on this information. You may not consider this testimony for any other purpose. You should not consider this testimony as substantive evidence related to the guilt or innocence of the defendant or consider it as reflecting the bad character of Lauren Canara. Moving on to expert testimony, ladies and gentlemen. As a general rule, witnesses can testify only as to facts known by them. This rule ordinarily does not permit the opinion of a witness to be received as evidence. However, an exception to this rule exists in the case of an expert witness who may give his opinion as to any matter in which he is versed, which is material to this case. In legal terminology, an expert witness is a witness who has some special knowledge, skill, experience, or training that is not possessed by the ordinary juror, and who thus may be able to provide assistance to the jury in understanding the evidence presented and determining the facts of the case. In this case, Detective Andreas Zaharopoulos of the Morris County Prosecutor's Office, I did practice that name over the weekend, ladies and gentlemen, happy to say I got remotely correct, close to being correct. Detective Zaharopoulos of the Morris County Sheriff's Office, William Stitt of the Morris County Sheriff's Office, Dr. Stephen S. Simmering, MD, Dr. Charles S. Hassan, PhD, and Dr. Lewis B. Schlesinger, PhD, were called as experts. You are not bound by such experts' opinions, but you should consider each opinion and give it the weight to, you, to which you deem it is entitled, whether that be great or slight, or you may reject it. In examining each opinion, you may consider the reasons given for it, if any, and you may also consider the qualifications and credibility of the expert. It is always within the special function of the jury to determine whether the facts on which the answer or testimony of an expert is based actually exist. The value or weight of the opinion of the expert is dependent upon and is no stronger than the facts on which it is based. In other words, the probative value of the opinion will depend upon whether from all the evidence in this case, you find that those facts are true. You may in fact determine from the evidence in this case that the facts that form the basis of the opinion are true, are not true, or are true in part only. And in light of such findings, you should decide what effect such determination has upon the weight to be given to the opinion of the expert. Your acceptance or rejection of the expert opinion will depend, therefore, to some extent on your findings as to the truth of the facts relied upon. The ultimate determination 
of whether or not the state has proven defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is to be made only by the jury. You have heard testimony related to alleged statements made by the defendant during psychiatric and psychological examinations by the three experts, Dr. Simring, Dr. Hassan, and Dr. Schlesinger. You should not consider these hearsay, sta hearsay statements as substantive evidence relating to the guilt or innocence of the defendant or for the truth of the matter asserted by the defendant in those statements. Rather, I instruct you to consider these statements only for the limited purpose of explaining or supporting the conclusions reached by Dr. Simring, Dr. Hassan, and Dr. Schlesinger, or for assessing the value of the doctor's opinions that are dependent or rely on the defendant's statements. Evidence of good character or reputation of an accused is always competent in the trial of a criminal action and is to be and is entitled to be considered by you. <clears throat> Two defense witnesses, Philip Dutton and Boyd Martin, testified as character witnesses. You, the jury, should consider all of the relevant testimony, including that relating to, relating to the defendant's good character or reputation, and if, on such consideration, there exists a reasonable doubt of his guilt, even though that doubt may arise merely from his previous good repute, he is entitled to an acquittal. But if, from the entire evidence in this case, including that relating to good character, you believe the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, he should be convicted, and the evidence of good character should not alter the verdict. And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrison. Join us on our next installment as we move on to look at Judge Taylor's instructions to the jury regarding how to apply the law to the facts as they deliberate whether Michael Barrison is guilty of the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 